My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One-on-One. -on -one. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in several ways. You can leave a comment on YouTube, you can write a brief review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. Today, my guest on the show will be Zoltan Istvan. Zoltan is the author of the uh, transhumanist bestseller, The Transhumanist Wager, as well as most recently, the first transhumanist candidate for the U.S. presidency. Zoltan, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Nikola. Fantastic. So I've been looking uh, forward to this interview with you for the past two and a half years since uh, our original interview. And I wanted to start our conversation with asking you to give us a little update. What have you been doing for the past couple of years uh, since our previous conversation? Well, it's so interesting to be back speaking with you because I feel like in many ways you launched my futurist career with that original interview because that was the very first um, kind of major interview that came out about my novel, The Transhumanist Wager, which was taken so seriously in our community and also by futurists that it actually helped kind of launch a career. So ever since that point, I have been promoting transhumanism, trans, uh, promoting futurist issues. And then, uh, of course, as it's kind of you know grown, I've uh, declared my candidacy for uh, for the U.S. presidency, and uh, and now I've you know become a very kind of um, I guess visible transhumanist who writes a lot and does a lot of things in the community, and I feel I owe a lot to you because of that. Well, let's go jump into the issue then. What do you offer, like Secretary of State, v Vice President? <laughs> I mean, come on, that has to be worth something. <laughs> well, Secretary of State looks uh, pretty. That's all, looking pretty attractive, I think. Yeah. But there's the issue that I'm actually a Canadian, too, oh, well, which well, occurs to well, me. May, may. We can fix that very easily. We'll give you an American. But you will be the president, so you can instantly make me. Of course, of course. And, you know, maybe Canada will become part of America, too. And, you know, I mean, I have all these global government ideas, so, you know, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm very serious, however. But, however, maybe that's a conversation for off-camera. <laughs> off-camera one. <laughs> okay. Let's go back on topic then. So, tell us a little bit more about, on the serious note of things, what is the Transhumanist Party all about? Well, the Transhumanist Party was a vehicle to get tr the transhumanist community interested and involved in politics. Now, when I began the transhumanist party, I wasn't really sure if it was going to take off or if it was going to, uh, you know, just kind of peter out or no one was going to be interested. It turned out that there was a very strong desire for the transhumanist community and for futurist communities to be involved in politics. And, um, of course, when you start a, a party, you really don't know what you're getting involved in. You just, you, you're hoping for the best, you have dreams, you want them to work out. But, of course, it's, it's very complicated to run a party. A lot of people don't realize that um, it requires bank accounts, that it requires, uh, you know, worrying about your finances, that it requires liabilities with volunteers at a rally that somebody maybe trips or maybe somebody hurts somebody. I mean, there's a million things you got to worry about um, as a political party. And so when I started this, I wasn't really thinking about a lot of those things. I was thinking, how can we use a, a transhumanist political party to get the message of transhumanism and life, uh, life extension science out there? Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So let me, by the way, I will be weaving in and out uh, every once in a while uh, a question from the audience. So that's a, that's a perfect opportunity. 
uh, one of the, the questions submitted is asking this, why so narrow? Why not, for example, call it the Science and Progress Party? Why, and the end result would have been the same, but a little bit perhaps less scary to the, let's say, average American. Why name it the Transhumanist Party uh, straightforward? And after all, as you well know, there has been even a, a movement away from the word transhumanist. At some point in time, the word had kind of negative connotations, and we had the, the sort of the forward motion or the, the change of humanity plus, and so on. So why did you decide to pick that? Well, so to begin with, this is, I think, this is one of the most important questions we can ask in the community and for the future is, what word do we want to represent the future? And I wrote an article uh, for Slate about 18 months ago that I, f I felt really defined my opinion on it, which is that transhumanism is the best umbrella term for all the words. It's better than cyborgism, it's better than longevity or life extension, is, um, extension. it's better than singularity, uh, the singularity because that's kind of a, a nebulous word. It's transhumanism that sort of, even though it does come with some negative con connotations, it is becoming the go-to word of of kind of describing what it means to use science to change your body and science to hope to live indefinitely and, and just basically where we're going in the 21st century. Now that's why I named it the Transhumanist Party. A lot of people said, why don't you name it the Science or the Technology Party? But naming it after a word, science and technology, just isn't that powerful. Transhumanist, like my book, is a word that sticks with you. It can be, it's a loaded term. It's controversial, it's in your face. And you like that. Yes, I, you need resistance, you need confrontations, you need a challenge in order to start a global movement. And that's what I am trying to do here. And I do you that, need it or do you seek it? Well, I think maybe both. I think I need it because I seek it or I seek it because I need it. It could be either way, but the fact is that I build, the way I try to build things is through a type of challenge or a type of confrontation. I see the world sort of like that in my worldview is everything requires a bit of a fight. And in this sense, I think putting a stamp of the word transhumanism, no matter how loaded or how controversial a term it is, is incredibly important. And I've decided to stick with that word. Now I know there's a lot of resistance. I read articles all the time saying we need to move away from that word. But in the three years that I've been promoting that word, that word is winning, and there's no question in my mind that that word at this point is going to be the winner of this entire uh, kind of word naming of the future. And, and that's why I named the party after it, because I know in 20 years from now, the word we're all going to use is going to be transhumanism. And it's so important that you get a word, like environmentalism. When you started the environmentalism movement 20 or 30 years ago, they were looking for words too. The history of it's fascinating. It's just like a transhumanism. Eventually, because of Greenpeace and some of these other people, they picked the word environmentalism. Mm -hmm. And that was the word that the government began using. So one of our keys for the transhumanist movement is to get other main people, and right now you're seeing it all the time in the media. I mean, every day people are using transhumanism now, whereas two or three years ago they didn't. It's critical that we use that word to say exactly what it is that we mean about modifying the body, changing the body, and changing the human species with science. And that's a great word to do it. Yeah, so you're basically unabashedly, unashamedly, kind of a little bit in your face if you have to be proud transhumanist. 100%. And I, there's no way that I'm going to be dropping that word. Um, the, the H plus symbol, I'm not so sure about it. That's more controversial because, as you know from the history of it, people were afraid of the word transhumanism, so they decided to go with H plus or humanity plus. You know, I know those decisions were made 15 years ago, but 
that doesn't work for the press. And the press is what determines where the movement's going. The, the media is what determines how we feel about this movement. And they need a word. They need a simple word that expresses uh, exactly what it is that transhumanism embodies. And that's, you know, science and technology to change the species. That's why the word is going to win. It's not going to win because um, somebody says it's going to win. It's going to win because it's the easiest term. It's the simplest term. It's the clearest term out there. And, um, and I, I can't say it enough. I tell everyone, when you talk about the party, when you talk about um, moving the movement forward, use that word because that word is, is the one that's going to change everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I have to say that I myself kind of have always... I'm aware of sort of the movement towards the H plus word and sort of even some of the, the reasoning behind it, of course. And yet, for some reason, I've never referred myself to anything else other than a transhumanist, really. Uh, so, so I have to back you up on that. And, and the other interesting thing is that I just watched another interview with you somewhere else, and this is a quote uh, almost verbatim that you say that, so on the one hand, now you said that it's kind of like proud and, and sort of a little bit maybe seeking uh, to be punchy and, and to sort of resonate with the media. Uh, but on the other hand, you say, quote, transhumanist party is to be all-encompassing and centrist. Th that's kind of like your strategic positioning, if you will. Tell us a little bit about that. Why and, and is it? So what has happened is, is, and it's ironic now because in the last month, the transhumanist party has had a lot of naysayers and haters come at it and attack it. But originally when I started the party, I made a point of putting aside mostly my libertarian ideals and forming a centric party. And that way, neither the left nor the right could be too angry because we were after all right in the middle in hopes that the whole movement would embody the transhumanist party. Of course, in the last few months, it the, the party has yeah, I don't want to say it's begin to unravel because the party is growing um, and, and the name recognition of the party is growing as strong as it ever has. And it's based so much on my campaign, of course, which is, you know, from a month ago and two months ago has doubled and tripled. Um, but that said, I, I think what's happened is that th there's just been a fallout a little bit from the older people in the community saying, well, the transhumanist party has gotten off the tracks. And then when they say that, it's because some people want it to be too right or too left or too this or too liberal or too socialist. And the truth is you just can't do that with a, a political party in such a small community. What you'd end up with is a, a bunch of tiny little sects. And of course, that's how transhumanism, the community has been for so long, is that uh, you know there's all these Facebook groups, there's all these different little positions. But I wanted the party to be one all-encompassing um, kind of political entity that says, regardless of your political beliefs, we're a political force. And we choose a centric uh, position to be as open-minded as possible for the greater good. And so when I say that, that's what I mean. Is that I, I, It wasn't necessarily my philosophy, because you'll notice my campaign, right. some of my campaign ideas are quite different than the party. Um, however, at the same time, it's like I tried to do for the greater good of the community. I realize now that may have backfired to some extent. So I will come back to that latter part a little bit later, but, but let me ask you this. So you're actually, you believe that you're able to kind of override your own sort of personal libertarian inclinations so that you create the movement, the political force, the political party, which can contain in its uh, self 
both the libertarian representatives, such as perhaps yourself and perhaps Max Moore, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the left wing of the transhumanist party, such as, for example, James Hughes, who is like a sort of a socialist Buddhist transhumanist. Do you think that's possible? Well, so I, the, the I, issue I, here is twofold. So one is your, in your own self that you can overrule your own leanings to, to the right. And then on, on the other hand, also to create the space that you have the common space of the left and the right within the transhumanist movement for the common goal. Well, in the beginning when I formed the Transhumanist Party, now it's been 13 months, it would have been too presumptuous of me to do anything but form a centric party. And the reason was because I was not as influential, I think, as I am now. I mean, at the time, I had just started writing some of my columns, um, and you know, I now write for three times as many places, and I write three times as frequently, and, and you know, the, the, the influence has grown a lot. And I think that's very important because when I began, I didn't want to shove things down people's throats. It's not that I want to shove things down people's throats now, but I have more confidence that I can get people to follow something that I might say and, and, and be a part of that rather than hope that by being centric, people will join just because it was a good, it was the good thing to do. Um, and again, I'm not saying that it's necessarily that the Transhumanist Party or even my campaign has backfired in the point of view of trying to be centric. Um, what's happened is there's two things. The first is, I, I'm just, I have enough f of a following where people will just sort of say, okay, we can trust Zoltan because he's done good for the community so far. And the second thing is I'm also evolving a little bit. I must say that I am more than ever turning to the left. Um, and I made one big decision, two decisions. In fact, I, I'm probably, you'll probably see when I do a rewrite of the Transhumanist Wager, the one thing I am going to put in the Transhumanist Wager in a second edition would be a universal basic income, which is at the core of it, incredibly socialist idea. But Hayek oh, was in support of it. But, Milton Friedman was in support of it. Well, you're right. I mean, there's, there's a lot of great people a, that... A, a number of people on the right have been in support of it. The, the problem here is that over the last three years since that book came out, I have seen again and again robots taking more jobs, software taking more jobs, and there's, that's not going away. And I know for a fact that if you take away too many jobs, like, you know, driverless... We're driving on the bus all day, the immortality bus. And it's mostly on truckers. We deal with truckers all the time. And there's 7.5 million truckers in America. Their jobs may all be replaced um, in they the next... They will be. Yeah. yeah, they will be. This is not possible to have them, big grown men, sit back and say, no problem, I'm going to go to welfare. They're not going to go to welfare. They're going to light Molotov cocktails and they're going to throw them in the rich people's houses and in everyone's house in the capital. They're going to start a revolution. So we need to do something. That's why I came up and said, I support the universal basic income, not because I thought it was, you know, this um, moral thing to do. I support it because it's best from a functional point of view of society. And I want to make sure that society continues forward so that we can live indefinitely. My main goal is to not die. <laughs> and uh, in order to do that, we need a society that's stable. So if that means becoming a communist society, I'm going to pursue a communist society. If that means becoming a ultra-libertarian society, I'm going to pursue an ultra-libertarian society. Right now, what it looks like is we are a society that's somewhere in the middle. We're going to slowly turn to the left, probably, as robots and things take jobs. Now, again, I'm not endorsing communism or ultra-libertarianism. What I'm just saying is I'm interested in living indefinitely. That is the goal. So if I need to bend over backwards to make that happen, I'm going to do that. If I need to try to establish a global government, 
to do that. I'm going to do that. Is I, there something you will not do? Well, is there a limit? <laughs> you know, and the, is there the one thing? Well, and this is where we get to some of the most core and what made you know the transhumanist wager such a challenging book is how far do you actually go? Would you do terrible things to people in order to achieve it? Now, I'm especially uh, you know as a politician would never admit to doing terrible things to people in order to live indefinitely. But when you're talking about changing politics, changing from a communist system or a libertarian system, of course I'll choose the best method because that's not doing one or a bad thing or a good thing to anyone. That's just simply a, a mode of, gov of how you run the government. So I would like to definitely change those things. But yeah, I'm not going to advocate in any way for anything harmful to people. That's, that's for my novel and that's for the book. And as you've probably heard, I've distanced myself from it because as a politician, it's, it's impossible. But I will change many things. I will make it so that perhaps it's more rough for society, but hopefully that's in the best interest of everyone living indefinitely. And maybe it wouldn't be rough. Maybe it would be something beneficial. Maybe universal basic income would give a lot more happiness to, to uh, you know, hundreds of millions of people. Zoltan, you said so many like totally new and fascinating things to, to me that I, I don't even know which one to grab first. But so perhaps I should digest them a little bit in the background and then uh, I should ask you uh, this. Well, let me let me say this, though. So one of the things, because you said you, you've had to dif distance yourself a little bit from your uh, protagonist in the book and stuff like that. I'll give you a kind of input that I have gotten from actually a couple of Toronto based transhumanists. Uh, one is a crayonicist too, and, and they said, you know, Zoltan, when he did the, the interview with you, it was the first interview he's ever done, and he was distancing himself a lot from his novel and from Jethro Knights, his protagonist. But uh, people said that afterwards, more and more, according to them at least, you were showing yourself to be the protagonist, the <laughs> G Jethro Knights, and, and, and basically, kind of revealing that his opinions are your opinion. Is, is that true? Or, and why would that be the perception if it isn't? Well, I think what's happened is, you know, when you actually get down to the philosophy of Jethro Knights, in many ways, he's a wonderful human being that would, you know, do wonderful things for, for the world. But there are things about him that are totally um, outrageous. There are things that are, you know, people would call downright evil. And there are other things that when you ask what is for the greater good, that he is perhaps the best at it. And you know, one of the things I've said, and I didn't say this on that show a long time ago, is that when I originally wrote The Transhumanist Wager, I was thinking of almost an artificial intelligence being that um, cold or that calculating. And I've said this now that I, I really do believe my book was will do really well in the artificial intelligence age when robots read it, because they may not see <laughs> some of the mammalian problems that we have, the problems of love and care and kindness and altruism especially. You know, Jethro just didn't really feel or understand those problems. He just uh, acted matter of fact. And sometimes I act very matter of fact as well, especially if I'm writing what might be a, a, a atheist article, which I've written a lot of. And um, when people see that, they immediately go right back to Jethro saying, see, he's completely anti-religious. Or, you know, some of the other things that I have said, um, for example, one of the big issues I'm pushing now, um, and here I am driving this uh, crazy coffin bus uh, to Washington, D.C. One of the very first things I'm going to do on my Transhumanist Bill of Rights is, is this idea that life hours must be protected by law. And I want to make it so that you cannot um, in any way 
take away those life hours because of your cultural religious beliefs. You can't be George W. Bush and stop stem cell funding. That needs to be a crime. You can't be the Pope and say condoms are bad and then millions of Africans die from AIDS. You, that should not be allowed. And this can be, this is very Jethro-like. So how do you stop them? I mean, the Pope will say what the Pope, what the Pope will say. What can you do to stop him saying what he's saying. So, you know, this is, the Pope's a kind of a strange question because of course you, you don't want to restrict freedom of speech. Precisely but, my point. But if you build it into the culture, into American law, and this is what we want to do, a Bill of Rights will be built into law, then somebody like George W. Bush would never be able to come and say, well, we're going to stop federal funding for stem cells or whatever like this. It would be something that you just would not technically be able to do. Now with the Pope, I understand that you can't just stop that because it's a religion and it's kind of culture. But there, um, you know, by bringing this into law, you would already be taking a step in the direction of changing culture and, and making, putting them on notice. Like, we're taking this a step further. And, you know, I'm not the only one who's advocated for the Pope saying this is illegal. I mean, uh, Dawkins and other people have said we, he should be jailed for, for these things. And uh, I'm not going to go as far as that, but I definitely would like to see some type of um, case where, uh, you know, they're put on, on stage and said, well, how can you acknowledge this? If you have 200 million Africans who are afraid to use the condom, you will have potentially more deaths from that than the Holocaust. Now, how is that religious? How is that for the best of the people? So I think by mandating some of these things in law, like we want to do with the Transhumanist Bill of Rights, you would put a huge amount of pressure on culture and on religious views, and that would, that would go out in a positive way. Yeah, I'm. to be honest, this is one thing I have to a little disagree with you because I don't think you can mandate it. I think the only thing you can do is to put the alternative argument and then people hopefully would have the ability to see and make a choice. But you cannot preclude one argument from being made, however ridiculous. Like today, people say ridiculous things about global warming, and it's a conspiracy, etc., uh, invented by Al Gore or whatever. But, you know, that they have to have the right to deny the obvious. That's my take on it. You cannot preclude them from denying the obvious. Like, and, and I believe that if you have a world which has enough education and, and, and people will be able to see uh, through the arguments in the end of the day. Well, and you know, and I like what you're saying, and I actually wish it would be that way. But the problem is that, you know, we already have a bunch of laws established. For example, when it comes to children and medicine and health, you know, there are people that go against those laws, but even California vaccination rules and stuff like this, we're getting to society that's saying, well, you know, health and longevity is our number one priority. Right. And I just want to say, I would like to make it a little bit more firm. Now, it's not something that I want to say, everyone must live forever, no one can do this, and you know, everyone must be uh, you know, non-religious. It's not like that at all. I just want to say that the concept of life hours is something, you know, when they say the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, all this stuff uh, in the American um, way of life, I also would like to say, and the pursuit of longevity. And this is something that I'm trying to establish uh, both with the Transhumanist Party as well as with my presidential candidacy and with the bus tour as well, is that we need a culture that says it's not just, you know, uh, liberty and happiness, it's actually longevity, it's lifespan. Mm -hmm. And if we can conquer death, this could be the greatest thing that's ever happened in the 21st century. If we convince people to do that, maybe we wouldn't need laws. Maybe we could just have culture. And then we'd be go, we can go right back. But right now I'm still afraid because, you know, 
You have to understand, it's nice what you're saying, but we have had 300 years or almost 300 years of American history where not one president has ever been uh, a non-religious person. So it's not fair that those views, you know, you, you, I know what you're saying is fair. It's like, yes, everyone can do what they want, but it's not been that. It's never been a, a fair playing field. And we want to establish I'm that. willing to grant you uh, as far as, let's say, the, the good example that you gave of vaccinations, right? We know, for example, that vaccines do not cause autism and that there's like enormous benefits from kids being vaccinated. And there's consequently enormous problems when kids don't get to be vaccinated. So I can support that kind of stuff that, you know, children of certain age should have certain kinds of vaccinations because it's for indeed not only for their own good, but for the good of the whole society. They're putting everyone at risk. I mean, usually right. the parents, that is. So I, I'm willing to, to, to go to that extent with you. But let me ask you this. How is your campaign going? You said it's doubling because because I'm very curious. I've been following yeah. it kind of from a distance from Canada and, and and I've been very impressed by the amount of media coverage you've been able to get. That's congratulations for that. But and you said it's been doubling constantly. So it's kind of exponential a little bit. Tell us a little about that. What's the reception? How is it going? Well, so the campaign has been fantastic. It's uh, I mean, to me, my, my wife is a little bit scared because when she signed up to uh, for this presidential campaign, she thought it was just going to remain this very small thing. And all of a sudden, now we are having cameras in our house almost every week. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, she's uh, sort of having to play a bit of the first lady part, which was not something that she uh, thought. So, uh, you know, she's supportive, but I just mentioned that because I think it's a funny, there's all these funny things that are happening. You don't realize when you actually start a presidential campaign and it starts to grow, all the different things that it means. And eventually you're getting asked, like um, the London Times or the Times of London um, did a big interview uh, about a week ago and they asked my opinion on ISIS and how, how would I stop that? And I thought, you know, I had been answering many technology questions for a long time and that's fantastic. But um, all of a sudden it's getting to like presidential presidential questions. Yes. How do you deal with a multi trillion dollar uh, military? And um, and the answers are being taken in credit and increasingly more serious. So that's uh, that's wonderful, and it's I'm welcoming it. But at the same time, it, it's definitely you know something that takes a, a, a larger picture and a larger uh, step back to say, wow, what if this actually led to this place? And uh, now I need a full team. I need all these different things. So we are doubling. About about Secretary of State, I yeah. tell you, I, I <laughs> you, got I the got training. It. It's got it. My, my specialty was I'm sending a armed, passport. I'm going to make the phone call later. <laughs> <laughs> but there is just, there's a tremendous amount of growth, and I'm excited by that, but I'm also a little bit, like, caught off guard because nobody ever would have thought that the campaign would get this big. Nobody ever would have thought that I'd be, you know, the number one, I guess, in publicity and from third, uh, um, third parties. And uh, all of a sudden, there's just a huge amount of attention. Yeah, from the independents, you're definitely, I think, as far as I can tell, the highest in terms of media coverage. Sure, I mean, I, I think by a long shot, and that's that's wonderful, but it, it, it's also quite a lot of pressure, and the bus tour is adding to it, because while the bus tour is a bit wacky, it's um, it adds a whole nother element um, to the entire campaign. You know, I'm, I'm actually on a real campaign, I'm doing real speeches, I just spoke to about a you know, 70 or 80 students at the University of Mississippi and another 500 of them came on the bus. So, you know, we're really getting, a, I ran out of business cards. I mean, we're, we're really getting the word out and, uh, you know, we're stopping at a lot of different schools and places. So I'm incredibly excited by how the campaign's going. 
but um, uh, it's it's it has caught me off guard too. So uh, th does that mean you're saying you're surprised? Yes, I am surprised. I was hopeful that this would happen, but when it actually happens, and you know, we've there's a, a good photo when I was in Austin, Texas, of four different cameras, uh, video cameras there, and I thought, wow, that's crazy. There's four different entities yeah. you know, doing stuff and that's when it really kind of struck me it's like wow this has grown and you know every day we have original articles written on it I and mean, some are small and it but every other day we have a mainstream publication doing something so does that mean that when you started you didn't think you can win you can like let, let's be honest what, what are your chances of winning oh, the 2016 election incredibly small but what we have chances of now are some very interesting things of course, I am sending out letters to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm mostly a supporter of the, the Democrat Party just because they have the better candidates right now. I think if there was a, a good Republican candidate that I kind of, you know, maybe Rand Paul's pretty good, but I, I still like uh, Bernie or Hillary better. But I have sent letters to uh, Hillary and to Bernie saying, um, uh, especially to Bernie, you know, you're probably not going to win uh, the primaries and become the Democratic nominee unless you, something happens. So. Maybe you need a uh, a young, uh, you know, mil uh, vice president that represents the millennials. So we are reaching out, trying to do that. Did the same thing with uh, with Mr. Lessig, uh, the Harvard professor. We are trying to reach out and, and trying to negotiate and see if it's possible that we could get, uh, you know, wiggle our way into some type of position that would allow us to um, maybe make a a real dent. That would mean j turning jumping parties from the transhumanist party to the Democratic Party. It's something I've seriously been considering. A lot of my editors um, had suggested I, I do that. I haven't done that yet. And I'm, I'm not going to do that unless the opportunity came. But it is something I'm working on right now. So this could be a very different conversation in two or three months. Yeah, I personally love Lawrence Lessig myself, I have to say, but but I want to go back to your centrism point that we were discussing before and whether any such move would not put that in jeopardy. Because if you commit to jumping on the bandwagon of the Democrats, you're not going to be perceived as centrist anymore. You would have been perceived as committed, as basically one like you've put your line in the sand you, you're already you're no longer independent you're no longer centrist you're a democrat yeah no i i uh, i understand that i think the most important thing to understand though is that when it comes down to what i'm trying to do i'm trying to extend lives so if i can say that this is in the best interest of the community transhumanism of of living longer for everybody on planet earth then I'm going to do it and I'm going to find a way around to explain it. Despite that way. the pushback? Despite the pushback. Because there's already pushback. Oh, you can see it, right? There's a lot of pushback. But, you know, I'm interested in one goal and that's not dying. And I'll do whatever it takes, basically within, you know, within reason, but there's a lot of stretching there. Whatever I can do to make sure that happens. And that means partnering with somebody that has views that are not necessarily my own. I'm a good employee. I'll follow the orders in order to spread, spread transhumanism. Hmm. How has been the reception? How has been the reception uh, of your campaign outside of the United States? Let's say Europe and, of course, Canada. And is there any difference between Europe, Canada, and USA proper? Well, yes. Yeah. So, you know, everyone is saying, wow, Zoltan is getting so much attention abroad. And, you know, I'm going to be honest, there's one reason why I'm getting so much attention abroad. 
because most media publications don't understand that a third-party presidential candidate really doesn't have that much of a chance of winning. They don't understand how terrible our system is. I, I'm really upset at the two-party system right now. When I started you know, to run for the presidency, I thought, like every other American person, that, oh, anyone can run for the presidency. It's completely a lie. Um, you can only run if you're a Democrat or a Republican and win, or unless you have like $10 billion, and, um, which is why we've only had one or the other, basically. So that's disappointing to me, but I think a lot of the international people don't understand, as a third-party presidential candidate, what your, your chances are so much more limited than they think. And um, that's worked in my favor in getting attention for the movement abroad, but um, the reality is, and I've always told everyone from the beginning, doesn't matter who it is, that you know I have incredibly slow, small chances of winning. Mm -hmm. It would take a, a small miracle, to be honest, to, uh, to arrive at that place. But um, at the same time, a lot of international people haven't worried about that, and they've just been interested in the presidential candidate who is promising immortality. That's been kind of the tagline. And frankly, it is kind of my main tagline too, from just even a personal perspective. My number one goal is to take money away from the military and put it directly into life extension science. That's the very first thing I do. I build my entire uh, platform and campaign off that. But my question was more in the sense that, are you being, uh, are you feeling a warmer reception abroad to your ideas? I mean, how is that, that kind of a difference between Canada, U.S., and Europe? Well, I'd say it's pretty it's pretty mixed bag everywhere, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I really don't see it that much better. I, I think um, certain places catch on better. Like Italy has been incredibly supportive of my campaign, the Italian transhumanist community. Um, the, the UK transhumanist community has not been so because they have their own party and they're much more socialist oriented. They have the UK transhumanist yeah, party. Yeah, and, and they're pretty developed. And um, uh, I think Germany has been pretty welcoming, but they're still so at the beginning, so they're welcoming just because they're, they're, start, they're kind of newbies. Um, but I would say South America has been very uh, embracing. The media has been wonderful about it. And part of the reason is that a lot of the places I write actually translate into Portuguese and Spanish. Mm -hmm. So you actually have a great opportunity to get the word out there. So it's a mixed bag about who's been most receptive. But one thing is sure, and everyone's noticed, is that the international media attention to the campaign has been, um, uh, you know, nothing short of a, a, a fireball. I mean, it's, it's been great. Mm -hmm. It's been all over the place and around the world. I'm constantly amazed. One of the audience questions submitted was pertaining the party membership. Can you explain how that works? Sure. So there is no membership in the Transhumanist Party. Originally, like for about three days, there was membership. But what we found out very quickly was that not enough people were signing up. And so almost immediately, I said no to the membership. And um, it, the membership fee was only $5. And so it was only a one-year membership. So there, at, for from a technical point of view, there might have been like a dozen people that belonged to the Transhumanist Party for a one-year period. Um, but we did that because we're getting so much media attention and we have such a unique platform that to say we only have a certain amount of members would just defeat the purpose. It's much better to be a political party that is supported by 25 or 35,000 people. I actually think that's about the, the accurate number. And that number is based primarily on my social media and on other social medias and the fact that there are probably 100 or 1,000 transhumanists in America or it's hard to say exactly how many, but certainly some support it. 
and maybe some would call themselves that. But we think that's about how many supporters there are. But to get them actually to sign on the bottom line, to pay something, to be a, a bona fide member where they would join a caucus and all this other thing, this would not work. And, you know, people are trying to form other transhuman parties right now, and they're finding this to be the case, that a political party with only 17 members is not a real political party. It's kind of a sect or a cult. So we made a point of it just trying to say that there would just be a few officers, um, about 15 advisors or 10 advisors, and a handful of volunteers. We have about 50 volunteers that do various things. Most of them don't work more than a few hours a week at best. But that was our, our goal. And then anyone else that wanted to help or contribute was welcome to support us. But there was no formal membership. And we did that so that we didn't become that <laughs> party that only had a certain amount of members and that, that just kind of looked bad in the media. But someone would say, like, how could you have a party without membership? Like, because then, that, like, <clears throat> there's no party without membership, really, someone would say. It's, it's just too vague. There's no, it's too speculative. It's too kind of ethereal. It, it, it's, it's very prone to kind of massaging the perception of it if, if there's no... And uh, we're, I'm the first to admit that that's the case. Uh, this is something that is ethereal. And that's what's important to understand about the Transhumanist Party. You don't just start a, tr a party, a political party, unless you have millions of dollars, which we don't. Um, and all of a sudden it grows to a thousand or five thousand or twenty thousand members who are all like chanting for Bernie, you know, like they do for Bernie Sanders. That's just not our community is not that big. So what we decide to use the political a Transhumanist Party as kind of a publicity vehicle mm -hmm. that encompasses a certain amount of things we are trying to take necessary steps we have a um, a texas transhumanist party being developed right now same thing with washington we already have two other established parties we have um, one in nevada and one in um i think in, it's either in baltimore or uh, actually uh, um no sorry it's uh, it's a state right by Washington DC, I'll remember in a second, but we've had a number of them kind of come out. It's very hard to do this. And, the, and the, the problem with this is because people have to develop LLCs, then they have to do bank accounts, then they have to get members, then they have to do um, all sorts of other things and there are liabilities involved and stuff like that. In the end of the day, it's like without a lot of money and just so you know, the Transhumanist Party has never collected over $1,500 in its entire existence in donations. So when you talk about being underfunded, now that's 1,500 US dollars. So where do you fund the campaign from? My pocket. So is your campaign is entirely self-funded? Well, so my presidential campaign doesn't actually take any money whatsoever. The bus is its own kind of animal. It's hard to say whether the bus is actually part of the presidential campaign or not because it's kind of its own thing. Uh, and, and also we don't advertise that it's like the presidential campaign bus. Because I remember you raised like $27,000. Yes, yes. So there's $27,000 for the immortality bus. But the bus is, again, because it's not like campaigning directly for, it's, it doesn't say like vote for Zoltan on the side of the bus. It's nothing like that. It's an immortality bus with right. transhumanist Zoltan. Right. So it's more like a, a kind of a concept. The party itself, completely separate from my campaign for legal reasons, it has to be, and has its own donation thing, has only collected around twelve or thirteen hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. And um, and for my own personal campaign, I've never taken any money. If you go to my website, and Lawrence Lessig will love this, you click on it, and it, you know, it's first off, it's it's crossed off, 
to say on the donation button and then you get click on it and it says oh Zoltan doesn't take anything because he's serious about campaign finance reform because there's no reason for me to take in an extra twenty or thirty thousand dollars personally for my presidential run um, in order to like have a few extra rallies it's better to make a, a kind of symbolic stand and say I'm the guy who's not taking any money and I'm gonna write in my, in my columns about it mm -hmm. and make a big circus of it and and then hopefully maybe people will listen and say well that's the real way we ought to run politics, not where Hillary Clinton or, or Donald Trump, you know, use $500 million or more to run their campaigns. That makes it impossible for all the other third-party candidates to do anything. It's crazy. So we have, make, we have made a kind of a, uh, a stance at not taking any money for the presidential campaign. The party takes as much money as it can, but not that many people have donated. And the, and the party money is completely separate from almost everything else. The party money pays... Basically, it's only paid for T-shirts and for the website itself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, let me see if I can move on to a few other questions because time is advancing, unfortunately. So, tell us a little bit about the teleological egocentric functional, functionalism. Well, <clears throat> it's a big mouthful. <laughs> teleological egocentric functionalism is the philosophy of the transhumanist wager. And it's also a philosophy that I have, you know, kind of staked a lot of my, I guess, career on. But it's not necessarily the philosophy that I am promoting as the presidential candidate at all, because it's a very, as it says, egocentric philosophy. But basically, teleological means something that is done by design. And I'm a believer not necessarily in the design of the universe, but I'm a believer that the design of the universe is that it's advancing forward in some way. Mm -hmm. uh, this may contradict laws of thermodynamics. It's adding up towards a certain end. Yeah. I believe that evolution is something that's built into the system. And... Um, Egocentric, the second word, is just that we are selfish animals. And functionalism is my method of, of how I like to go through life. You know, just be reasonable. Two plus two equals four. When you make decisions, follow the most expedient path. So, you know, when I refer to the philosophy, it's always tough, of course. But, um, you know, teleological egocentric functionalism has caught on in the last three years that it's yeah. been around. And I think, actually, we have about 34 or 35 colleges that are now using the book. Um, actually, some are high schools, maybe four or five are high schools. So I've been doing some Skype interviews or Skype uh, appearances into some of these colleges that are actually using the book. And that's really been excellent because um, it, not only does it, of course, help with, uh, with sales, but it's great because then you actually are having people like dissect the book and mm -hmm. really look into it. And uh, oftentimes it's, there's now offering a huge amount of like, well, uh, more and more universities are offering futurist courses. And of course, the book is this great, it's never taught as this book that's, um, uh, you know, <laughs> promoted, it's taught as a warning, mm -hmm. you know, and of course that's great because I think that's, that's part of what the book was written for is to be both an inspiration and a warning. You can take what you can from and it. And you said you're planning to rewrite it and kind of make it somewhat more left, left leaning. No, no, not rewrite it. I just thought that I didn't understand enough about universal basic income when I wrote it. There's probably, I would just probably put that in there mm -hmm. as a method. Just for, a, a little bit. Yeah, I would change a, maybe uh, one sentence. But okay. that sentence is quite substantial because it was such a hardcore libertarian book. But you have to understand, one of the reasons... But hardcore libertarians like Friedman and Hayek both were in yeah, support of that. One of the reasons I like the universal basic income is it's going to get rid of Social Security and it's going to get rid of welfare. Because of both those, and I've also promoted kind of an Obama, Obamacare insurance where a universal basic income wipes out all these things we fight about. Because all of a sudden, now people have the money to pay for these basic things that they need, and there's no more complaining. 
-hmm. And so this idea of Social Security, like bankrupting us, well, if we had a universal basic income, it would take care of that, take care of welfare, it would take care of insurance. Now, how much money do we save? And also, how many, you know, we don't need so many people working for the government doing these things as well. So there's a lot of savings that would come from these kinds of things. And that's probably just the one thing in the book that I would change. Mm. There are other things, but I won't get into them. But I think that's the only one line because some people would take it kind of as a, mm -hmm. a personal offense if I change too much. Another audience question is, how much influence can one person in his work of fiction have on a political movement? Oof, that's a tough one. <laughs> uh, you know, when movements start, they always have leaders. And when movements start, they're often based on books. This is a fact. And, you know, the, the idea is that these, these people that lead these movements, they hopefully have charisma and do a good job of it. And, of course, I've sort of been put in a position where, because of my columns and because of the political party, I've become, I guess, one of these leaders. And a lot is resting on my shoulders, and I hope I'm doing a good job of it. But I also think that's the nature of the beast. I don't see, you know, this is one thing that's always surprised me with the community is they think a political party is a political party, but when a political party starts, it's not so much a political party as it is a startup. And I see it as a, as a CEO. And that's how I've been running the political party from the start, is that it's a job, and it's a job to grow it. And, you know, you asked earlier about members. Well, I would like the Transhumanist Party one day to have members. I've, I've mentioned this before in an interview that at some point I would probably hand over the political party to the community. But the point is, by the time I hand it over, it's going to be a kind of a world-recognized name. And that'll be wonderful for actually getting more members because I have no doubt if we open membership today, we would have a hundred times more members than we did when I tried this um, 12 uh, 13 months ago in, and had a kind of a terrible result. So, But it's still not as big as it can get. get. After my campaign, especially if my campaign continues to grow, I think the transhumanist party is going to grow with it. And that's be a great time to hand it over to the community and say, now can we do something with this and not... And not mess it up. You have to understand the transhumanist organizations over the last 20 years have sort of become mucked up. I mean, IET two months ago was on the verge of bankruptcy. H plus has been declining in size for a long time. So I don't want to hand over a, a this entity that has become kind of this global phenomenon in order for it to just dissolve because of all this argument, you know, argumentation between Basically, everyone in the community, I mean, you know how the, our transhumanist community is. They, they argue and argue and argue again and again on Facebook. And it, frankly, I had higher ambitions and, and loftier goals for the transhumanist party. It's part of the why I've kept a pretty tight control of it. I know some people say, oh, it's authoritarian that you're just running the transhumanist party the way you are. But it's not really. It's just we have a bunch of platform goals and it's something I created. It's a name that I trademarked. And these are the kinds of things that you do when you start a political party. Give it five years. Just be patient, grow the name, and then let everything sort of unfold instead of, uh, you know, sending me hate mail or whatever people do all the time saying that, oh, you're, you're running the transhumanist party exactly the way you want to be. Well, I mean, I am because I created it, but at some point in the future, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to hand it over and hopefully we can grow it into a real third party. Yeah, one of the, the kind of questions on that in that vein where the, uh, somebody asked, political parties have primaries to select their candidate. 
but the Transhumanist Party apparently did not. Can you please explain? Well, absolutely. When we started the Transhumanist Party, there were so few people, um, literally so few, that's a handful, and I mean like a single handful, that we were like, well, how can we actually get this off the ground? Because who are the people who started the Transhumanist Party? So my wife and I were originally the ones who started it. Um, Christy Armstrong and Hank uh, Pilsier were invited to be officers. And then from there on, I got a bunch of different advisors and a few volunteers to help out, all within the scope of a, a few months. But originally, it was just my wife and I, and we worked on kind of the platform. And then about a month later, we got uh, two more officers, Hank and Chris. And we had a meeting, Hank, Chris, myself, and my wife, and we nominated me as the uh, the presidential candidate. And because you can't have uh, primaries when you have seven members. It, you have to understand that groups don't work with only so few people. And even if there were 30 people, there's so much infighting in the community that it's kind of crazy. It, it just doesn't work. You need thousands and thousands to have any kind of real consensus. So when we formed the Transhumanist Party, it was this idea that I would run for president and use my columns and use my uh, you know ability to get into the media as a way to grow the party. The problem is it worked too well because one year later everyone's freaking out that the party has become this giant thing and we didn't do the things the normal way. But they forget that when we started that there was just five or six people. Mm -hmm. And that's the bigger problem that a lot of people I think are forgetting is that now that the party has become something real, um, you can't just go back and say, oh... Uh, you can't try to run primaries now, for example? Well, I probably wouldn't win in the community. I definitely don't think I would win. And why do I want to take so something I created? Does that say something? What, what's that Yeah, say? it's exactly what I said, which is, if you don't like the way I'm running the Transhumanist Party, go form your own Transhuman Parties. In fact, I will help you in my columns because I feel it's in everyone's best interest to have as many political kind of technology parties as possible. And this is what I've said again and again. If you don't like my leadership and you don't like what I'm doing with the Transhumanist Party, please go form your own. And in fact, I'd be happy to help you. So that's what they need to do. And I think that's what some people are doing right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we know exactly what's going to happen, don't we? Let's be honest, especially since we're on camera. We know exactly what's going to happen. It's going to go nowhere. Tell me, I don't it's know. It's not going to go anywhere. It's already seen it. In the last four weeks, it hasn't gone anywhere. The Transhuman National Committee is not doing anything. They're going to run into the same things I did, except the one thing they don't have is they don't have... Um, a person behind it who is able to write in mainstream media and spread the news of the party. So what they're left with is now, you know, a, a tiny 20-person party which is going to end up like going through rules and here, there. I've been to the FEC commission. I've been through all these different things for a year now. I've been through the attorneys trying to figure out how to actually set up the structure. It takes money. It takes a lot of time and commitment. And unless you have that, it's not going to work. And this is why I told people I think it would have been better had they just continued to support me, let me finish out my campaign, and then as I had promised publicly to David Wood and Emma and Tiemann on camera, that I would turn the party back over to the public, and then you could do whatever you want. Because I have every, um, you know, I have interest in letting the Transhumanist Party grow and blossom into something. But I don't have interest in doing something now where a handful of people would try to sabotage me just because they're jealous elders and they've been left behind by the movement. I mean, that's the fact what's happened. So I, I am not willing to bow to their request, and uh, I'm not going to compromise one iota at all to any of their wishes, uh, to, that, to those people that have been uh, bombarding me with hate email and memes and whatever else they do all day. 
um, and, and emailing my editors out of the blue about it being a non uh, a non qualified party. Some people think that just because the party hasn't qualified with the FEC, it's not a political party. A legal political party takes two people, literally two people, to form it. You can you and I can form one, another one right now if we wanted to do one, and we can do it in five seconds. So that's how you make a political party. And yes, over years we'll get FEC uh, registered and all these things will come out, but it's going to take a long time to do that. We need state parties, and especially to be FEC registered, you need other federal candidates. So you need about four or five other people running for federal office. Mm -hmm. Let me throw in another different question from the audience. Michael C. says, because of Zoltan and the Transhumanist Party, I have become inspired to start a party on my own, which is exactly what you're talking about. The, he calls it the Artificial Intelligence Party. What are his thoughts about the 10-year-old girl that is challenging the U.S. Constitution about the requirements for USA president? Why can't super-friendly AI become POTUS? Uh, that's uh, Pre uh, President of the United States. Yes. Thanks. Yes. So I, uh, I love talking about artificial intelligence as a president because eventually we'll have a machine that is truly altruistic, not susceptible to lobbyists, and may run our country better than any human being can do. And I, would, I have welcomed people to start their own political parties. In Gizmodo, I wrote an article, you know, early on I bonded with a number of different political parties, futurist political parties. Reddit's Futurology has a political party. Um, there's a number of them in the United States that already exist. And I had written about them thinking, the more the better, because none of us have a chance to get anyone elected, and none of us have a chance to become registered in the meantime, and none of us have really uh, you know, enough clout to do, but together, we can form a cultural movement that says political parties that are geared towards technology and the future are arriving and that will send a message to the other politicians that they need to pay attention to us. And this is one of the main goals of the Transhumanist Party is to influence other politicians and say, you don't need to you know, endorse us, but at least listen to transhumanist ideas and try to hear some of the things we're saying. So I would absolutely encourage people to start other political parties. There needs to be a biohacking party, a, a longevity party, if there is one, but you know, one that's really gathered um, some, some steam and uh, kind of momentum, and also maybe a, a cyborg, and a, you know, could be even a singularity party. I mean, it could be all sorts of parties. The more, the better, in my opinion. A question from Daryl Tempesta. Every presidential candidate relies upon relational power sharing. How are you going to trade for gain and to do it ethically? <sighs> well, it's a tough one. Yeah. So, you know, again, the way I've created the transhumanist party and the way I've created my kind of career so far, at least as a futurist, is that there really hasn't been much power sharing because I'm way too early on. Now, of course, if I was to jump to a real political party, such as the Democrats or the Republicans, um, I would have to learn to do that very quickly. But right now, when you're so small, you don't have to ask such big questions. You focus on your goals. You focus on getting your brand name out. And I'm trying to brand transhumanism. That's what this is about. It's a, it's a branding game. And um, because of that, one day we might wake up and sort of like environmentalism, everyone supports environmentalism today. You know, 20 years ago when they started environmentalism, it wasn't like that. No one had heard about it. You would talk about saving trees and they'd say, well, why? You need to start somewhere and you need to work yourself up. It's very slow, it's very laborious, and that's what I do. So the power sharing will come later when, when there's enough members, when there's enough numbers. We're too small to worry about that. But you're saying that the brand is so important, and I totally agree with you, but 
how for example do you differentiate your own personal brand zoltan from the transhumanist party brand that you're trying to create and can you at all um yes i absolutely think you can you have to realize that right now all you hear is zoltan i mean i know that's Precisely what everyone, that's what everyone's yes. upset about but once this ha is handed over or once this goes somewhere else in over a 15 year period it's just going to be the founder oh there was that guy who founded it it's not going to be long to Zoltan. And that's I think what people don't get is that they're focusing right now on the here and now instead of seeing the longer picture. I see the longer picture. The longer picture is branded, it build it and they will come. It's that kind of idea. So you're going precisely against your own egotistical philosophy. You're going to create it, develop it, make it grow and mature and give it away for free. <laughs> no, I think it's sort of like Steve Jobs to be honest with you. I think um you create something and if people don't like it they'll kick you out but at some point if you did enough good they'll realize they need you back and they'll invite you back and i think that's what's going to happen i think i have uh, and also you have to understand i have other ambitions um i uh want to develop the transhumanist party but it's actually not the highest goal i have my, my higher goal is to create a, a movement and the party is just one facet of that so I, you know, I'm working on a multiple different goals. I think the immortality bus could honestly become much more influential than the party ever will be uh, over a 10 or 15 year thing. I know that sounds strange, but it's generating probably as much media attention. And we're talking, I have investors that are interested in having a bus in Asia, a bus in uh, Russia, a bus in Europe, a bus in Australia. We might end up within two years have five or six buses all over franchise the transhumanist bus yeah and and the idea <laughs> is that it's this incredible cultural thing where people would jump on and jump off and we try to always keep it something non-profit where it, it becomes a symbol and it's and talk about you know branding something and and saying what it means well this is what this is what we're trying to to do so it's possible the immortality bus might be much bigger than the than the transhumanist party ever will be I'm just saying, I don't know. I yet. hope not. I, <laughs> I know, I know a lot I, of people don't like that idea of the bus, but they also forget that something like that has more of a chance, uh, at least in my opinion, of sticking because it's so unique and so original. Whereas honestly, a thousand political parties are started a day and another 999 fail. Yeah, that's the reality, but there's only one bus. Well, I, I see I see space for both of those actually of course, at, of course. at different levels. but. Uh, let me throw another tough one here. Uh, so I was uh, soliciting uh, audience questions over Facebook and left, right and center. And I have to admit, I got swamped. I got like over 50 or 60 and I stopped counting and I couldn't process <laughs> them at some point. But a couple of them stood up. So here's one which is not really a question, but I'm asking you for a comment. So Lincoln Cannon uh, said something, by the way, which was echoing Hank Pelissier and he said, Whereas my concerns with Zoltan began as a political disagreement, they've become distrust. So perhaps regrettably, my interest in hearing Zoltan answer particular question, questions is low right now. So I, I just want you to comment. He's not sending, because I asked him, would you want to send a question? And he's like, no, I'm not really interested because of what I just read to you. What do you want to say? What do you want to do? You well, want to comment anything to well, that? This is, you know, Lincoln, Lincoln Cannon is the one who wrote the petition, and the petition is very much the real reason there's been so much uh, problems in the community. You know, he wrote a petition to disavow my presidency, and um, at this point, the petition has failed miserably. It's 
you know, at first they wanted a thousand signatures, then they reduced it to a hundred signatures, and you know, six weeks later they only have eighty-nine signatures or whatever. But the point is that you know he's become very upset because he sort of, in my opinion, lost. He he thought he had this great thing. He really thought I was disliked by the community. He didn't realize, as I think many elders don't realize, that the community has grown so far beyond the elders that. When you talk about the Facebook groups three years ago that were 1,500 that are now over 20,000, these are youth. These are millennials, and they are not so serious. They're not worrying about disavowing a president. They're not so worried about policy. They're just like, hey, this is exciting stuff. They know I'm not going to win. What they're excited about is that transhumanism is spreading, and they like projects. They like activism, and so I think a lot of the elders have become quite disillusioned by the fact that you know, the presidency is not hated, or my, my candidacy is not hated like they hate it. And um, the, the youth just don't like it, don't hate it at all. They, I think they, they find it fascinating. And in the same way, I think the media finds it fascinating. Again, mm -hmm. it's not even about me at all. It's really just about the fact that transhumanism beca has become an activist movement. There is activism on the ground. This is not something where you're going to conferences and academics are speaking anymore. This is on the ground stuff happening. And I can tell you that some of the projects I'm involved in, you know, potential um, series on my novel uh, through a major, major, major uh, television company, as well as um, a potential TV show on the bus, an ongoing series. I mean, it's about to get a lot bigger. Yeah, it's funny because last uh, Christmas I got approached for a TV show myself, by the way, uh, from a couple of people from L.A. And uh, in the end, nothing came out of it for a number of reasons because... The two main reasons were that they wanted me to relinquish entirely all control from my show, uh, which I didn't think was either fair or proper because, uh, you know, if this is my baby, I want to have some say into like how it's going to grow up and which way right. it's going to go. Uh, but but also they had a very different sort of target audience than, than what I have right now. And that kind of talks to me a little bit about the difference between activism and, and sort of probably my audience, because right now my audience is probably the geeks the most intellectually sophisticated uh, people, many scientists, many people at the cutting edge, but they're not necessarily activists. And, and, I, and I'm trying to make the di di differentiation between the, the kind of people you're describing as activists who are supporting you right now. And, and so in this case, in particular, for the show, one of the things, one of the ideas they were running by me was they wanted to make a reality show uh, about transhumanists and I don't even know how it was connected with me but it was kind of like tattoo parlor for transhumanists with enhancement technology and in the end I just thought totally the wrong people the wrong conversation right. the wrong format and I just couldn't see myself being a part of it so I just st stepped away but uh, let me throw another one from Hank this time from Hank Pelissier who says Ask Zoltan why don't doesn't he use his legal last name Gurko publicly? A long time ago, when I was uh, working for National Geographic, they were saying it improperly. And did I just say it improperly? I probably did. No, no, nobody can say it properly. It's it's Gurko. 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 I can't really say it. And um, so I started going with Zoltan Ishvan, um, and it also has a little bit to do with my father's not liking the name. He came from a very small village, so it was just Isfahan. Isfahan means Stephen, and it's kind of a little bit more, 
nice sounding. And so I've just kind of went with that name mm-hmm. for the for the longest time because otherwise it was a little bit like, you know, and also Jerko's jerk. Oh, so I, I grew up. Thinking, so in other, in other words, there's not some kind of a dark story from the past that's going to come out in the next presidential election to haunt you. I don't think so. No. Okay. No. Okay. So here's another one. Uh, why do you frequently present yourself as a transhumanist who works harder than everyone else to extend life? Do you realize there are scientists solving the problems of aging and you're not one of them? Have you actually raised any money for research or convinced a single government representative to increase anti-aging funding? Now, th- this is an excellent question. Look, everyone has to approach transhumanism if they want to do something for it in the way they can. Um, I'm a journalist by trade, and uh, you know I'm obviously um, pretty good at dealing with the media. And You're fantastic, I have to say. <laughs> so, you know, this was my natural course of action. Um, I respect the scientists. They are doing work that I perhaps couldn't do at all. So, I mean, they have all my envy and all my love and all that. Um, but what I'm, I think, good at is writing articles and, and maybe being on camera and some of these things. So this is what I focused on. I think um, it would be unfair to say that the transhumanist movement requires only scientists. It requires people to publicize it to the broader culture. When I go to Mississippi with the bus, I can tell you that it's very important we tell them about transhumanism because they are voters. And if they vote a very conservative person into um, the presidency and he chooses not to um, you know, put forth laws that enable transhumanism, we set ourselves back. So it's up to people like me that are what I would call popularizers, and I've even made fun of myself. Evangelist. Yeah, evangelist, but I even made fun of myself saying we're cheerleaders, and that's fine with me. That's what I do. I go around the country talking about how positive and how cool this stuff is, and um, I think that's a very important uh, thing to be doing. I think we need more people like that because this is not just about scientists. This is about a worldwide movement, a world civilization embracing it, and that takes us to be convinced of embracing it. There are many people that are going to be afraid of it. So I take your answer as a way of saying that the scientists do a very important job, but perhaps people like you also have an important job in the sense that they do raise public awareness, which then puts perhaps hopefully pressure on politicians who actually decide the funding or whether not to fund some of those scientists if it's government funded, like for example in the case of George W. Bush who pulled off funding for stem cell research, right? So that's kind of like the gist of what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I just think a popularizer, you know, most presidential candidates and most, uh, you know, people that have moved culture forward have not necessarily been scientists or been the people that are technically involved with their movement. A lot of times they're just very good at getting a message across. And, and that's important too. But I'm, you know, I, I still... When I meet scientists, I hold my head, you know, I, I look at them, I look up to them. I got to say that I'm still uh, looking up to scientists and people like that all the time. So uh, I hope no one ever thinks that um, I think we don't need them. They're, they are the, the core of the movement. And I'm doing my best just to get them more money. That's mostly what my campaign is about. How can I get money into the scientists' hands? Because to be honest with you, I, I kind of like sort of implied this because I, I kind of look <clears throat> at it this way my, myself in the sense that I honestly, uh, and, and people tell me all the time, send me emails about the difference I've made for their life and stuff like that. But when I actually interview the people at, at the front lines, the people in the trenches, the people who actually do the research, I mean, no, because those are the people who are really making the difference. 
I'm just a, a bold guy who asks questions and loves to, 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 to ask those questions and have a nice conversation with those people that I think is very important too. But, but in a way, I'm not really in the trenches. I'm not really making that difference as much as the scientists. So my, my take on my own personal place is kind of several levels, to be honest, below. Uh, even though, unfortunately, for, for them perhaps, uh, I, I, I do get, tend to get a lot more visibility uh, because, of, because of what I do. We, we all play our part, and those of us have to do what we can do. You and I are journalists, and we get the word out. We talk, we bring these people attention that they need to get more funding. And so I think it's very valuable what we do. But at the same time, I know other people are like, the transhumanism should be an exclusively scientific movement. And if you're not a scientist, you're not a part of it. But that's, transhumanism has grown so big now. There, there's many people, there are truck drivers and, and plumbers, and this, it, it's, it's grown everywhere. To be a transhumanist does not mean to be a scientist anymore, an academic. It means to be someone who supports science and technology to change the, the human species. And we can all do what we can do to, to push it forward. And I think you and I are doing that, in fact, in this conversation and all these other things. So I, I think there's a lot to be said for journalists. I'm doing all that I can. That's all I can say. But to me, that, that still doesn't compare to what other people are doing. So at any rate, I, I love what I do and, and I, I'm totally having a blast. And if it's making a difference for the people there, then that's, that's awesome. But anyway, this is not about me. So let's get back <laughs> on topic. Um, Terry Harris says, nanotech is the linchpin of any serious attempt at a transposed human existence. Even the longevity escape velocity idea will require nanobots in the second and third generations of regenerative medicine. Does Zoltan have a plan for getting nanotech off, off nanotech off the ground? I, 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 I'm presume, <clears throat> presuming you, you succeed yes, at, at the election. Uh, of course. Well, if, look, you know, the very first thing we would do is if elected, and everyone says, what's the very first thing you do? We'd basically sit down, me and my staff, and say, all right, how much money can we take away from normal American operations of society and put directly into life extension science. And I've often said we would take $1 trillion. And that's based on the fact that, that you know, if we spend $6 trillion on the Iraq war, I think we can say we can spend a trillion dollars. I've heard dollars. numbers as much as, high, as 10. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm probably sure it is. So the idea is we can definitely spend a trillion on this stuff. And I think what you've just said with nanotechnology is certainly, in my opinion, one of the most interesting fields. I know we're not quite there yet, but um, when you talk about hybrid intelligence and all these other things, it's fascinating. Um, I would focus on life extension technologies, but if I can be convinced of that, then I would put huge amounts of that trillion dollars into it. Mm -hmm. You know, For me, it's about what is the most expedient method to get it so that we can conquer death as quickly as possible. Do you not think you should bet on multiple horses at oh, once? I do, I do. I do think of multiple horses at once. I would never do one. You know, for me, like personally, I would do robotic organs. I would do stem cells. I would do... Um, 3D bioprinted organs? Of course, 3D print. I would do reverse, uh, trying to reverse aging through genetic therapies, nanobots. And I would also just do some basic things. Maybe we can find new drugs out in, in the, you know, in the... Um, in the wilderness and stuff like that. There are many different things that we can do. We just have to, whatever it is, and, and I'm a total shotgun approach guy. I want I want to throw everything out there at once because I think that's the safe method. Mm -hmm. So, um, but whatever we do, we just got to do and it. And then because, just see what sticks. Yeah, yeah, and I, the thing is we would take industries that have been starving for resources and we'd give them 100 times what they had. 
Right. And say, go to it. Anything you need, whatever you want. Just like they've done with the military. And a libertarian would ask you, and where are you going to get the money, Zoltan? Well, I mean, I would get the money from, from defense. I just don't think we want need so much um, money for bombs. I just visited a missile. I'm writing an article right now on, on a, a missile range in a big giant missile park. And it's crazy how much money they've spent. You know, crazy. We have 25,000 nuclear bombs right now. Do we really need that? You know, can we do away with that and save that money and put it towards life extension Is research? it 25,000? I thought the U.S. had between four and five. U.S. has around nine right now. Russia has between 13. There's a, a few more between that. I just looked. I just wrote the article. So I did my really? research today. Yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's about 25,000 still, according to CNN reported 2013. Because so. hmm. I, I thought those drumber, those were the numbers, I think, around the peak of the, or towards the end of the Cold War, they were double. And then there was a substantial drop. And I think the U.S. came to about four or 5,000 and Russia came to about two or three times more than that. That was kind of low point, but don't. As I said, I did my but, my policy long time ago. So the, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure in the numbers. But the thing is, it's it takes so much money. It's way too much anyway. It's way too much. There's and, no and, and just a fraction of that money. Yeah. Well, not a fraction, but five percent of that money could change the life extension industry. And then, like you know, I wouldn't. We wouldn't need the transhumanist party. We wouldn't need all these things anymore. We'd be done because death would have been conquered. So these are you know how. The things that I would like to do, I mean, if you could, if I could be into office for four or hopefully eight years, it would just be like change the culture, get out, and now everyone's like living indefinitely, and we've restructured it so that everyone would be very supportive of these technologies. And it just amazes me that, you know, other candidates and other people aren't thinking about this. I, it, it shocks me how anti-science or, or how at least closed-minded they are, because you would think in the 21st century, this is the most important thing to do. I, I have to agree with you that it's it's definitely up there. It's it's definitely one of the most important things I can think of. But I, I'm more interested. Tell me, how do you see yourself within the next, let's say, 12 months of the presidential campaign, and 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 thereafter? In other words, what's next for Zoltan, both during the campaign and afterwards? So this is really tough because honestly. You have an idea yet? Yeah, yes, I do. I just I have many different things so, to begin with. I really. One of the things I want to do is finish off this campaign. I'll probably concede at some point, put my support somewhere else. But um, what I want to do is finish off this campaign so it's, it sets the stage for 2020. And that's very important to me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, a sort of legacy must be built and a, a good draw, a good finish must be done somehow. You're laying the groundwork for the next one. Exactly. In other words, you're very strategic long term yes, and, about and Because this. I never believed I had a chance to do this, but I do believe They'll look back on me someday like they're looking back on Bernie and Bernie Sanders and saying, look, this guy has been doing this for so long. And if I can establish that kind of credibility, that will help for a real run someday. Now, I think the other thing is, you know, with the bus, like I said, we've had a number of different TV people approach us for an ongoing series. And that also is a very interesting thing because, well, maybe people in the community aren't so thrilled with the wacky bus. Um, I don't think they realize that from a, a point of view of spreading transhumanism, it's an incredibly effective vehicle. And um, I may take something like that, which would require, and I've already been sort of in early negotiations, um, you know, a six to 12 month kind of window to, to do a real ongoing series and uh, for hopefully a major television channel. So that might be what I would do next. But I guess one of the other things that's very important is 
I've thought that after the presidential thing ended, I might actually run for a local office to gain more experience. Um, not necessarily for the transhumanist party, but for some other state party. or province or uh, or municipal. Uh, you know, probably state. I think it'd be kind of a house position somewhere in Congress, mm -hmm. but something small enough where I would have uh, maybe a much better shot at winning. Mm -hmm. And um, if I could then get in, that would be the natural political ladder for something larger. Mm -hmm. um, now, I'm not saying I'm going to do that for for sure, but um, my considering... wife and I have discussed it, and yeah. I still have the luxury of not working. Luckily. So um, it's not that I'm not working, but I have the luxury of spending all my time dedicated. It's got to be very tough for your wife, and you have two young kids. Like being like a presidential campaign is exhausting. It's a marathon. Oh, it is. Especially the American ones. <laughs> I've yeah. done speeches after speeches. It is exhausting, and and they are. I, I miss my kids, especially because my youngest daughter is uh, now 19 months. So it's a terrible time to be away so often. Um, but at the same time. I do believe that if you can succeed, you help lay the groundwork for them having a very successful life as well, because they'll be, you know, they'll get things that that no other children would get. And my wife finds it rather fascinating. She knew when she married me, she was gonna, she married me because I was interesting, you know, not because I think of anything else. She's often said I married you because you're interesting. So I think she's getting that. The problem is that you know I'm away all the time, but um, hopefully it won't be so bad always. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's for sure the path you've chosen is definitely not an easy path. Um, tell us a little bit about the sequel, because I remember exchanging <sighs> messages with you. I don't even remember if it was, was Facebook or something maybe over a year ago about the sequel coming, but I haven't seen it yet. So, yeah. and I imagine you've been just overwhelmed with the, with the... No, and, and let me just say for the record, I would love to do a sequel and I hopefully will someday. And I have it actually a sequel planned out. But in this point in time, this is another thing I'm going to definitely do next year is to write a book. In fact, I'm going to probably write a book um, on my bus trip, mm -hmm. but not on the bus trip necessarily. I'll use it as a vehicle to explore the different places that I've been and the most important concepts that I've come across in technology. I need a good nonfiction book because while my novel has been wonderful, it's probably been a hindrance to my campaign. It gets me in trouble all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I need a good nonfiction book that's solid, well-written, um, it, it explores, it's challenging, did well, as a book that can define me, because right now everyone's defining me by the transhumanist wager, and that's not going to work for being elected president. Mm -hmm. So I need to put get to a point when the transhumanist wager is that work of art that I did, and that now here there's a functional um, nonfiction book that explores most of my ideas. Yeah, because quite honestly, even since our, at our first interview, that was my major criticism was that I thought that your plot and everything worked very well as a literary device. I don't quite see how it translates into political sort of platform and campaigning. Sure, there will be some overlap with the ideas and stuff like that, but it's a double-edged sword, as you just said, and it yeah. may hurt you more than it. So you it definitely <laughs> need a, a, a lot more sort of serious something that stands on its own and, yeah. and that kind of above and beyond the, the novel, no, perhaps. And we've had people, agents and whatnot, reach out and saying we would love a a real transhumanist nonfiction book that explores the entire field from your radical and activist perspective. So you can expect something like that for sure well before probably 2018, just because I would need that out and to have done well um, in order to you know make a, a, another run. What's so. the best place for people to follow up 
on that kind of updates from you? You know, unfortunately, um, just my website, ZoltanIshvan.com, or my Twitter, or you can follow me on Facebook and stuff. But I, I, I'm it, it, there's so many moving parts. And just two days ago, we got we entered some real negotiations on reality TV for the bus. So mm-hmm. everything's hard. You just got to take it as it comes. When something comes to you and you know it's good enough, you got to run with it. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's sort of been the case uh, all along with everything. And I, I have other circumstances too. And um, and you know about this too. Um, uh, my father is incredibly sick right now. Like uh, he could easily die within the next month. Um, I'm surprised he's still living. He had a, his fourth heart attack about uh, two months ago. So I've been very lucky actually that the I've been able to continue the campaign through this because his health has degraded, you know, fallen apart so fast. So we have that, and then we have other things happening. Um, my wife's father died last year, and then we, you know, we have parents to take care of. So it's amazing. I think a lot of people don't realize that in addition to doing my campaign, I'm often running a household with young kids, and my youngest daughter just started public school. And an aging father. Uh, an aging father, and you know, we're dealing with heart attacks and diabetes and flying places and whatnot. And then we're also dealing with my wife's parents and, you know, we have, I got mortgages too and I have work yeah. to deal with as well and some of the businesses that I run. It, they're not too time consuming, but honestly, I, I have, uh, you know, if I sleep more than five and a half hours a night, I consider that amazing. Mm-hmm. So Zoltan, a- as you know, I, my last question is always the same question. So. We've covered a lot of ground here today. Uh, I'm sure that we've answered a few questions, or I, I hope we've answered a few questions. I'm sure we raised a lot more probably, if, if I've done my job right. But uh, what's in your view the best way to wrap this whole thing up? How, how, how can we finish this off? What's the best kind of parting message that you want to send out to our audience tonight? Ah, well, you know, this is so question, I think, one of the reasons I was really happy to come on to your show and talk about it was especially to address some of the concerns of the community, especially some of the elders who had been getting a little bit um, upset about how fast and far the Transhumanist Party had grown. So I would just um, tell people that when you look at history, history is not something that's happening at the moment. History is something that takes place over a five or 10 or 50 year period. And the same thing is happening with myself, the transhumanist party and the transhumanism movement. It's exploding in size. The transhumanism movement is growing fast. There are some major thing on the horizons. The Dan Brown movie Inferno that's coming up this summer could completely change the the, the movement in itself. And so when people get kind of upset about uh, the movement going this way for a little bit or that way, take a bigger picture, take a step back and understand that we're all part of a great giant, um, multi-year, multi-decade movement that's hopefully going to get us so that we don't have to die and that we can be far more improved as a species. And not to get stuck on the on the nitty-gritty, not to get stuck on the daily stuff, and not to uh, get so upset about things, but just say, hey, it's great that the movement has different projects like the Transhumanist Party or other parties. It's great that these things are happening, and let's all try to work with one another, embrace it, and uh, and help each other so that the movement can grow in the positive, uh, in the most positive direction and can also grow. Zoltan Nistran, thank you very much for being with us tonight. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.